for that prayer this morning, Jim. I appreciate it. Well, if you were with us last week, and maybe some of you weren't, and I realize that today, uh, more so than most days, that there are a lot of people watching us by live stream, a little smaller group here today. Um, I'm just thankful for all of you, where, however you may be watching this morning, but last Sunday morning, I began a new series, a six-part series in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. So uh, last week was the introduction, this week we're looking at part two, and so we will be looking at the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, chapter one and verses five through 17. That will be our text this morning. And just as I did last week, I'm gonna jump right into the outline because I think that's the best way to handle this. I won't be reading the passage ahead of time. Um, When I preach through the Gospel of John or other New Testament books, I tend to do that because the text is much shorter, but I'm just gonna read this passage as we work through it because in these sections of Habakkuk, the passages, these Old Testament passages are fairly long. So our first point this morning is the Babylonians are coming. In our introduction to the book of Habakkuk, we see the prophet agonizing and struggling with questions for God. Now, if you weren't here last week, you um, may want to go back and watch that message. You can watch it online easily. Um, because I went through a lot of historical background, a lot of biblical historical background uh, for the book of Habakkuk. And so, um, uh, obviously, I'm not going to go back over all of that this morning, but I do want us to look at those first four verses because the book of Habakkuk, very simply, is a question and format um, design. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Habakkuk is asking God questions, and God responds to his questions. Then Habakkuk asks more questions, then God responds to his questions. So, as we saw last week, just want to briefly, very briefly, look at those first four verses because it's important that you know them as we set up what I'm going to share with you this morning. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 1 says the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So this is the word of the Lord. Remember, they didn't have the Bible like we do now. They had the Torah. They had the law of Moses. But when the prophets spoke, whether they were the major prophets or the minor prophets, they were the word of the Lord, and so is Habakkuk. This is the oracle, the inspired word of God to Habakkuk, even though it's in a question and answer format. And Habakkuk is struggling in the opening part of the book with his own people. He lives in Jerusalem. He is in the southern kingdom of Judah, the last good king of the southern kingdom was Josiah, and Josiah's son was Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is ruling at this time. Jehoiakim was the polar opposite of his father. He was a wicked king. He was an evil king. And among 
the people of Israel among the southern kingdom of Judah, which is the only kingdom left at this point because the northern kingdom of Israel has already gone into captivity to the Assyrians, they are straying far from the Lord. Their leaders had become corrupt and they were oppressing the poor. There was a great deal of violence and oppression among them. And they, as I mentioned, had departed a long ways from the word of God. And Habakkuk looks around him at his own people, the people of God, the people of Israel, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah, and says, God, why aren't you doing something? And in verse 2, he says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? How long, Lord, do I have to cry out to you and see you doing nothing? Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Oh, Lord, why are you allowing this to go on among your own people? And then verse 4, which we looked at last week, gets to the heart of the problem. The law is paralyzed. They're completely ignoring the Torah. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. You ever feel like that? Sometimes there are more wicked people than there are righteous people, and justice is never done. And so he struggles, and he cries out, and he asks God, when are you going to do something? Why, O Lord, aren't you doing something about the evil among your own people? And that's how the book opens up. Well, God is going to respond to Habakkuk. And God responds to Habakkuk by telling him to wonder and be astounded at what he is about to do. He assures Habakkuk that he is going to punish the people of Jerusalem, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah. Oh, be sure of that. But I want you to wonder and be astounded by what I'm about to do. In essence, God is saying to Habakkuk, you might want to take a seat. You might want to listen very carefully to what I'm going to tell you because I know, I know it's going to shock you. And so that gets us into our text this morning. And in verses 5 and 6, God begins his response. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So God says to Habakkuk, yes, I am going to punish your people. I am going to bring judgment upon the people of God for their deep sins. And I'm going to do it by bringing the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans of the Babylonians, they're synonymous. In fact, if you go to some English translations, they translate it Babylonians and not Chaldeans. I am bringing the Babylonians to punish your people. Now, what we need to understand at this particular time, Babylon has become the most powerful empire on earth. 
they were rising to great power under their king Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were running roughshod over every part of the world. They had developed this great and mighty army. And if you had lived at the time of Habakkuk, obviously they didn't have a television, they didn't have a newspaper, but everything was communicated orally. It was communicated by word of mouth and word was getting around. Man, the Babylonians, they're taking over everything. They are so powerful. If you go back and read history, in 614, they conquered Ashur. The city of Ashur means almost nothing to us today, but at that time in history, it was the largest, most prominent trade city in all of the world, and the Babylonians just went in and conquered it. In 612, the Babylonians conquered the great city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. In 605, they conquered the Egyptians. So the two previous greatest empires, the Egyptian Empire and the Assyrian Empire, had been swallowed up by this time by the Babylonians. Basically, they took any city they wanted to take. They took any province they wanted to take. They took any nation they wanted to take. And no one, no one at this time could stand in their way. In verses 7 through 11, God gives this vivid, graphic, poetic description of what the Babylonians are like at this time. Habakkuk, here's who's coming, and they are coming for your people. Let's just work through verses 7 through 11. It says, They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They were dreaded by the world. They determined their own rules, their own forms of justice. Verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They had developed the most powerful army that the world had ever seen. Verse 9, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. They are violent. They are cruel. They are ruthless. Verse 10, at kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Kings meant nothing to them. Rulers meant nothing to them. They mocked the kings of the other cities and nations, their fortresses were as nothing to them because their armies could so easily overcome them and defeat them. And then verse 11, an important verse. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. They come like the wind These guilty men, these sinful men, they sweep like the wind. And it says, whose own might is their God. They had become so strong, so powerful at this particular point in history that they had completely, they had the classic, 
complete secular mind. I am my own God. I need no God. I need no supreme being because I am my own God. And folks, this is something that has repeated itself throughout history down to our own day. When men and women get a measure of power, whether it be business power or political power, they become gods unto themselves and they only answer to themselves. When people become strong physically or intellectually, they become a god unto themselves. I can solve all of my problems. There is no one who can stand against my great intellect or against my physical strength. And so we become our own gods. And he says to Habakkuk, this is who's coming. This is who I have raised up. And I just want you to notice that. Verse 6. This is not easy. For behold... This is God speaking. I am raising up the Chaldeans. I am raising up the Babylonians. Well, our second point this morning is Habakkuk's astonishment. God's response to Habakkuk's questions leaves him even more confused and troubled. As we look at verses 12 to 17, I want you to enter into his confusion I want you to enter into what's troubling his mind. He's saying, oh God, I know we're bad. I know my own people are bad. I just ask you why you're not doing something about them. But the Babylonians? They're more evil than we are. They're far more evil than we are. You're going to use people far more evil than we are? To punish our evil? Oh God, how can you do that? That's your instrument? That's what you have raised up and chosen to do? Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He goes back to the character and nature of God, which is good, and we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But Habakkuk, besides being a prophet, and perhaps why God chose him to be this prophet, had good theology. He knew who God was and is. And he says, Lord, you're the everlasting God. You're the great I Am who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. You're the eternal one. Oh, Lord, my God, you are holy. You are perfect. You are without spot, without sin, without blemish. We shall not die. That's a difficult little sentence, but what it basically means is you will not let us die. You have promised that you will always provide a remnant among your people. You are our protector, oh, Lord. You are our defender, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them, the Babylonians, to come and to judge us. Oh, rock, oh, stable one, the one that we hold on to, the one that we cling to, our stability in a world that is 
in constant upheaval, O rock, you have established them for reproof. Oh, he's struggling. I know who you are, O Lord. You're good. You're great. You're awesome. So why would you use these people to punish us? Verse 13. Notice what he says. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? We may not be very righteous, but you're going to swallow us up by people who are far less righteous than we are? Lord, you are of purer eyes than to look on evil. God, you can't even look on wrong. You are so holy. You are so pure. So why do you sit by, and this is what he's saying, just from the honesty and the pouring out of his heart, why do you sit by and do nothing? When these traitors, these evil, wicked men, why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up us or swallows up people more righteous than he? Again, I know we have sin, but you're going to use people far more wicked than us to punish us. Verses 14 through 16. To understand this, you need to understand that the Babylonians, besides being this great empire at this time in history, and besides having this vast army, the Babylonians were known as being great fishermen. Great fishermen. In the regions of Babylon was the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. And in the, on the southern border of the Babylonian Empire was the Persian Gulf. So they were incredible fishermen. It was how they made a living. In fact, in some of what they would call reliefs or carvings that they found, they found on old cave walls depicting the Babylonians, they would see them as fishermen, and sometimes they would be dragging their captives in their fishnets. And so Habakkuk says... God, we've heard about the Babylonians. We know about the Babylonians. They're just treating the whole world like they're fish. Like they can just come, put them in their nets, and do whatever they want with them. Look at verses 14 through 16. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Oh, he's just treating us like we're helpless fish. Swallows us up, makes us his own, goes off and lives in luxury and riches. Now, I want you to compare verse 11 with verse 16. Remember, it says, whose own might, whose own might is their God. Verse 16, 
Therefore, he sacrifices, he makes offerings to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So he's his own God and he worships his fishing net because that's how he lives in luxury and riches. He is completely self-consumed, self-absorbed, with no thought of God at all. And then verse 17 is really a reference to Nebuchadnezzar. Habakkuk says this, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Oh, Lord. Are you going to let that wicked king keep swallowing people up and killing nations forever? How long, Lord, are you going to let him go on like this? How long are you going to let him keep doing this kind of evil? And so he struggles. He struggles with these questions. He has a question God's answered, and now he has even more Questions And as I said, I want us to try to enter into the struggles that he has as he looks at the work of God around him. Why? Why is God allowing this? We struggle with this. Every single one of you here today in this auditorium, every single one of you watching by live stream, whether openly or privately in the recesses of your mind, struggle with this question, why does God allow some of the things that he allows? Some of you may remember the George Barna research polling group. From the mid-1980s until 2009, when George Barna sold his company, it was one of the best-known research groups out there and certainly the best known when it came to Christian research. Of all the surveys they did, and this was probably just about 15 years ago or so, one of the most famous surveys that his group ever did is they surveyed both Christians and non-Christians, and this was the question. If you, excuse me, let's say that you could come into the presence of God and you could ask him one question, and know that God would answer, what would that question be? The number one answer, by far, no comparison, was this question. They would ask God, why is there pain and suffering in the world? If you are a good God, if the Bible says that you are a good God, then why is there pain and suffering in the world? And we struggle with Habakkuk is struggling with that very question. C.S. Lewis once said that pain and suffering is the atheist's greatest weapon when he tries to argue with a Christian. We do. Why does a tornado hit one town and not another? When there's a school shooting or shooting in a store Why do some people live and some people die? 
Why is one Christian miraculously cured of cancer and the other dies and is not cured? Why is one baby born with disabilities and another baby is born perfectly healthy? Maybe at the same hospital, same time. Why does God allow Russia to invade Ukraine? Thousands of people have died. Thousands of people continue to suffer. And there's no end in sight. Why? Why does God allow that? And I want to say to you this morning, I want to say to you this morning, all of these questions need to cause us to be driven deeply into the Word of God, but not just to read the Word of God, but to read the Word of God looking at the character of God and the attributes of God. I want every one of us listening to this sermon today to be encouraged, to be challenged, to drink deeply of the character of God and of the attributes of God. Because if you don't, if you don't have a confidence in who God is, it will drive you crazy. Your understanding of who God is will determine whether you trust him or become angry with him. It will. You must understand biblically the character of God and the attributes of God. Because as you look around you in this sinful, fallen world, there are many, many things that simply will not make sense to you. So many times I hear people say things like this, well, I I just don't know why God did that. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's not what I would have done. Why would God do it that way? Why would he allow that to happen? And I want to say to all of us that if you serve a God who has to do everything the way you want him to do it, you are not serving the God of the Bible. You are serving a God of your own imagination. God God does not work the way you work. He does not see things the way you see them. We are sinful, fallen, finite human beings. Yes, redeemed by the blood of the land, saved by the grace of God. But still, we live puny little lives and we have no clue of the immensity of all that God is doing around us. God was on the move in Habakkuk's day. He was on the move in great and mighty ways. He allowed a man named Daniel, and I mentioned this last week, he allowed a man named a young man named Daniel to be captured and taken away into captivity into Babylon. He had Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego taken off to Babylon and they became powerful great witnesses to the glory of God. Daniel went on to leave one of the most exemplary lives found in the Bible besides Christ. God was moving moving in ways that Habakkuk could never understand. And it didn't just happen in the Old Testament, it's happening right now. God is moving in the world in ways that are beyond our understanding. 
And I want to say to every one of us, whatever right now, at this moment, whatever you are thinking about God right now, he is greater, he is bigger, and he is better than any thought you're having of him right now. And you need to dive into the word of God and you need to see how marvelous and amazing and holy and righteous and good that our God is. Folks, we must, we must trust in the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God. We must. No matter what my eyes may see, no matter what my emotions may feel, no matter what I may hear, I must trust that God is in control and that in everything he does, he is perfect and holy and good. It is the only thing that will keep me going. I know this is an old saying, but we need to say it again. We need to let God be God. Okay, we need to let God be God. He's God and I'm not. It's one of the most basic fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And we need to let him be God. We need to trust that he knows what he's doing in every circumstance and situation on this earth and in this universe right now. God knows exactly what he is doing. And then I want to add one other thing. Every single question that we have, that you have and I have, every single question we have about God and for God must ultimately be answered at the foot of the cross. Whether Old Testament, New Testament, every teaching, every question must ultimately find its answer at the foot of the cross. This is where all of Habakkuk and all of the Old Testament is pointing to. At the cross, the most, from a human perspective, unjust, unfair circumstance ever in the universe, God poured out all of the injustice, all of the wrong, all of the evil ever. He poured it all out on his son Jesus and punished him thoroughly for it. And that is the only reason that sinful, wicked, evil people just like me and you are able to find forgiveness and come into the presence of God. That can only be answered at the cross. The late theologian and pastor John Stott once said, if it were not for the cross, I could not believe in God. I could not. Three passages of scripture to end. Psalm 115 and verse 3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And you know what? I thank God that he does. God is in heaven. And he does whatever he pleases. We must let God be God. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. I know you know these verses well. We need to hear them again. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Your ways are not God's ways. Your thoughts are not his thoughts. He is infinitely higher in his ways and thoughts than you are. We must trust in the goodness and sovereignty of God. Finally, Isaiah 40, 31. 
And I know many of you love this verse, but I want you to think very carefully about it. But those who wait in the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You may have that on a little card. You may have that on a plaque hanging in your home. You may have it as your screensaver on your laptop. But I want you to know this morning that the most important phrase in that verse is the first one. Those who wait on the Lord. You need to read the whole context of Isaiah chapter 40. It's a great chapter. It's one of those chapters I have marked for me personally, one of the great chapters in the Bible. But you need to read the whole context there. Those who wait on the Lord. Not those who understand everything. Not those who have figured everything out. But those who wait on the Lord. Those who trust the Lord. Those who trust him no matter what they see. They are the ones who will mount up with wings like eagles. They are the ones who will run and not be weary. They are the ones who will walk and not faint. We're going to close with that song, which I think maybe could be the theme song for the whole book of Habakkuk, Behold Our God. That's what this book is about. Not, I'm going to answer all your questions. But in the midst of all your questions and all your struggles, all your burdens and all your concerns, the Bible says, Behold, your God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the immensity of your love. Thank you for your patience with Habakkuk's questions. Thank you for being so patient with our questions, with our struggles, and with our burdens. We praise you for the answers that come from the word of God, and we praise you for the cross, the ultimate answer to all of our questions. In Jesus' name.